0: Wow, what a time in worship it has been together. And thank you, Maggie, for the beautiful prayer. And just haven't you been blessed by the music today? Amen. Well, family, we're going to get right into the text today. I want to invite you, in whatever format you have it, to turn in God's Word to Acts chapter 10. It will also be on the screen. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What, what is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the Centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to 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 ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house as his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get back up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you have sent for me? Cornelius answered, Well, three days ago I was in my house praying at this very hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining white clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer, remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God then Peter said surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water they have received the holy spirit just as we have so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days quite a story isn't it quite a, a long story are, are you still awake you still with me i've found it very riveting of the story, but I wanted to read through it to get you to feel how long it is because, you know, this is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. In fact, it doesn't even end there. You want to read the next 18 verses of the next chapter? It continues on for that amount of time, 66 verses in all. I think Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us something by the amount of space given to this story. I think it suggests that the events surrounding Peter and Cornelius' encounter are extremely important for us to take notice of. Peter also alludes to these events again at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, uh, the, the passage that Pastor Ken preached on last week. That was also a very important time, and this moment was brought up in that meeting. It seems clear that this episode is a crucial step in the progress of the church in fulfilling the Great Commission. And one of the reasons I think why it's so crucial is because this event involves a conversion of two people. The first, of course, is that of Cornelius. He has a conversion in the traditional sense of the word that we would mean. He's a good person, a devout person. Don't you love the way in which that's highlighted in the story? It says specifically that he's devout because he gave generously to those who were in need and he prayed to God regularly. I think Cornelius would have been an awesome member of the Calamasa Church because he seemed to spend his time loving God and loving people. But Cornelius was missing something. He was missing something the gospel. He needed to hear the good news about Jesus, so God sends Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius. He accepts it, commits his life to Christ, is baptized, he's converted, even though God's obviously already been working on his heart. But then there's another conversion experience that Peter seems to have, not in the traditional sense of the word that we would normally think of, a conversion. For Peter, of course, has already lived a life where he has repented and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's his committed follower. He's going around preaching the gospel. But Peter does need a change of heart in how he sees someone like Cornelius, a Gentile. So God appears to Peter in this strange vision. At least it sounds strange to me where this sheet from heaven is is dropped down and all these animals are, are on it. It's like the original pigs in a blanket and all these unclean animals, and, and God says, get up, Peter, and eat, and Peter's like, no way. I'm not going to eat. I've never eaten anything unclean like that. In fact, he tells God three times, no. I don't know about you, but if God appeared in a vision to me, and he told me to do something, I'm not sure if I'd have the courage to say, no, God, <laughs> three times in a row. I'm so glad for God's patience with us, aren't you? God kept saying, no, I'm trying to get you to understand something. And I don't think what he was trying to get Peter to understand was that he needs to start having a new kind of diet in his life, right? That It's okay to put foods that are unclean into your body. This is the perfect illustration for someone like Peter who would have never eaten anything like that because he's trying to get Peter not to have a new diet, but a new perspective that sees no person should be called impure or unclean, that there is no favoritism in the kingdom of God. Two different men, two different visions, two perspectives that needed shifting, two hearts that needed softening. In a way, you could say, there's two conversions that happen here. And I wonder, family, is this something that we need to be mindful of today? Does this apply to us today? That it's not just the hearts of the evangelized that need changing, but also the hearts of the evangelists too. This past week, out here in the parking lot, there was somebody riding around uh, on a motorcycle. It was a young kid. His dad was trying to teach him uh, how to ride a motorcycle, and Nancy was here, first service, Nancy Hall, and there was a berry delivery or fruit delivery, maybe some of you picked up some stuff, and there was a lot of people in the parking lot, and it just wasn't really wise to have somebody, you know, circling around in the parking lot on a motorcycle, so they came in here and said, hey, you know, Darren, could you go out there and talk to this gentleman, so I went out and and, and met the dad, um, he obviously, you know, he, he told me that he's really into motorcycles. His son, I think, was like 13 or 14, is trying to teach him how to ride motorcycles as well. And, you know, I'm glad that our community uses our parking lot from time to time, I think mean, it's cool. I see a lot of people walking there, riding bikes in there, but it just wasn't the best time to be like circling around in a motorcycle, which was a nice one, by the way, in the parking lot. And so I started to talk with him and said, hey, you know, could you guys maybe do this some other time or find another place to to, to go, uh, or another place to, to do this, and, and he was really understanding, and and uh, we talked for a while, and after we made some small talk, I, I felt impressed to invite him to church, and then I glanced down to think about what I was going to say, how I was going to invite him. I glanced down, and I saw his shirt for the first time, and I don't remember exactly what was on there. I didn't linger there for a long time, but there was several profanities on his shirt, and a message that just really made me uncomfortable, and so I stopped. I I didn't, I didn't start to invite him to church. And I just thought of something else to ask him. You know, hey, well, where are you from? You live around here. It turns out he lives just a few doors down from our church up on Myrtlewood. Talked more about his son. And eventually at the end, I did invite him to church. But I felt uneasy about it at first, hesitated at first. You know, the Bible does tell us to be as harmless as does, but it also tells us to be as wise as serpents, right? We want to be welcoming here, but we also want it to be a safe place. And so I was struggling. Well, is this a safe thing to invite this gentleman to our church? I can at least say that I prejudged the man, that I think in that moment, God needed to work on my heart as well as he needed to work on his I think that is important for us to remember today. What's interesting to me also about this story where two different hearts are changed is that they are changed by pretty much the same factors. The same ingredients cause the same transformation for both Cornelius and for Peter. And that's where I wanna draw your attention to today, family. We've got a little ways to go. I know it's been a long service today, but I pray for your patience. We're gonna get through a few of these ingredients, a few of these factors. Because I think it's important for those of us who are both sharers and hearers of the gospel to continue to have our hearts open to God, for, to have God working on them, amen? So here's the first factor I see in the story, prayer. The whole thing starts with prayer. Did you notice that? The vision that Cornelius has, it's when he's in prayer. The vision that Peter has, it's when he's in prayer. And did you notice it doesn't just say that Cornelius prayed, it was that he prayed What? regularly and there's also a cool detail about peter it says it's at noon that he goes up on the roof to pray he goes to find a special place but he's also going at noon you know that the jewish believers if you were devout you prayed three different times during the day and noon was not one of those prescribed times so this is above and beyond the requirements of a faithful jewish person to pray during the day wasn't just the minimum three times peter found another time, another special place to prioritize prayer. Sometimes I think we forget the right way, the correct way in which to approach prayer. And you know, family, there is something that I I need to get off my heart. I know we have been together for about a year and a half now, and there's something that I need to be real with you about. I need to confess to you. It's not something I'm proud of. Sometimes, sometimes I listen to country music. Mercy, I know. And the other day, I was riding around in my car, and I was flipping through the dial to try to find some good songs, and I landed on a country music station, and nobody else was in the car, so I felt comfortable just leaving it there and listening for a little bit. I apologize to any of you that really do love country music. You know, I'm... I'm with you there. (laughs) And then this song came on that was about prayer as I lingered on that station for a while. This is how the song began. I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job. You just pray for them. I thought, whoa, this is awesome. I love this song. This is why I listen to country music once in a while. And then the chorus came on, and here's what it said. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. (laughs) Now, I, I don't think that we have that kind of an incorrect approach to prayer. At least I hope not. But I think we do sometimes look at prayer in the wrong way. Like it's something we do when, when we're here at church or before a meal or when a crisis happens. And, and absolutely, we should be praying in those ways. We should be doing prayer that way. But I think Peter and Cornelius, from the descriptions we get from them, they remind us that prayer is not something we do. Prayer is something we live. It's just part of the regular rhythm of our life. And that's not easy to do. Cornelius prayed regularly. Peter went beyond the expected times in which he was supposed to pray. They lingered, it seems, in the presence of God in a way that was just part of their everyday rhythms of life. I've shared uh, some of this story with you before, but it was when we were doing online services, and I have told you, anything I have said in our online services last year, it's a fair game to tell you again in person, so uh, you can deal with it. But I wanted to share this story with you, and I thought it just fits so perfectly today. It's about when i was in a class at seminary and i was uh the class was on church growth and and outreach and it was from a professor called joseph kidder amazing guy if you've never written, read, uh, read any of the books that he has written i would highly recommend them just a spiritual man um, and he is kind of like this expert on church growth and and outreach and he's uh, got a phd in it written lots of books had a lot of experience on it and he Um, not early on in his career, but, you know, uh, fairly well into his career. He almost had finished his Ph.D. at this point, decided to accept a call to a church. Um, And this church uh, started with 100 members, and they had this big building project um, to uh, build a church that could hold 600 people. They had all these visions of, of, you know, growth and reaching people in their community. And over the years, that building project was a source of um, controversy, Uh, between the church members. And over a few years, that church of 100 members went down to 40. And that's where he comes in uh, to serve at this church. And, uh, you know, he's coming in again as this real church growth expert. And he said that um, when I came in, um, you know, I was almost done with my with my doctoral degree and all the things I had learned, the things in my previous uh, pastoral ministry experiences, all the strategies, plans, programs, seminars, we, we just did them all. And I was working 60 to 80 hours a week. And after three and a half years of intense effort, cutting edge methods, the attendance went from 40 to 30. He said. And he said, I was ready to quit pastoring. In fact, I typed out my rec- uh, letter of recommendation um, Resignation, not recommendation, thank you. Resignation, and he brought it to his wife and he showed her, look, this is where my heart's at. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And she said, Joseph, have you been praying for your church? And he said, I, I started to get a little defensive in that moment. I thought that was a bit judgmental and harsh. Well, yeah, I've prayed for them. But then he said after I kept talking with her about it and thinking about it, pretty soon I lost the argument because deep down inside I had to admit that I was more into strategic planning and programming than into prayer and spirituality. So right there with my wife's encouragement, I decided to make a commitment to spend one day a week fasting and just doing nothing but prayer. Every Monday I would come into the church, I wouldn't check emails, I wouldn't study for the sermon, I would just sit in here and pray. And I remember him telling us in class, he said, the first day was amazing. I got in there and I prayed for a whole two minutes and I slept eight hours, he said, (laughs) on the pew. He said, I never slept so good in the day ever in my life. He said, I got home and I was worried about what to tell my wife, you know, didn't really work so well. He confessed to her, I just prayed for a few minutes, I slept the rest of the time. It was hard for him to get in that rhythm of living prayer. Well, she encouraged him. He went back to it the next week, a few more minutes, a few more minutes. Eight months later, he's been doing this. Hasn't told his church that he's doing this. And he's gotten up to many, many hours now. Took a while. And he starts to talk in his book. You can read it. It's called The Big Four is what the book is from, about just how it changed his life. Uh, There were still 40 people in the congregation. But after eight months uh, of doing this, there was one Sabbath morning where there was Sorry, it was 30 people, right? went from 40 to 30. There was one Sabbath when there was 34 people in the church. There was this new couple, wife and husband and two daughters. And uh, he talked to them at the door, couldn't believe that they were there, wanted to know, you know, why they chose to come visit that day. Turns out they also lived just up the road, a few houses down from the church. And as they talked together, they realized that he started this prayer journey And they also started a prayer journey about the same time. They had been praying about wanting to go back to church. They both grew up in the church in different denominations and they had met a Seventh-day Adventist once upon a time who was impactful for them because of the character of that person. And they thought, you know, there's a Seventh-day Adventist church right, right by our house, but they prayed about it and prayed about it. He was praying that God would send people to their church. And they came. A few months later, they were baptized and at their baptism, Joseph Kidder preached a sermon telling his church what he had been doing, how he had been praying. And some amazing things happened when he said, "You know, this is a result of us just praying together, living prayer. And someone in the church stood up and said, you know, I haven't prayed for my kids who, who aren't in the church for years, and, and I'm so inspired to do it again. And somebody else stood up and said, yeah, I have this friend of mine who I've, been, I've stopped praying for, I've almost given up, and they, they wanted to commit again. And then pretty soon that church went from a church that just did prayer, that did all these different things, both personally and collectively as a church, to start living prayer. And that church of 30 people, eight years later, was a church family of almost 500 and he says this in his book. I wanted to read this quote. He said, All the church growth strategies that I implemented did not work, but prayer transformed my life and that of the congregation. When we tried every technique, we failed, but when we tried God, we succeeded. Prayer is, prayer is something we've got to live. It's what changed the hearts of Cornelius and Peter. And then there's a second factor, another important thing that I think We need to take notice of here that contributes to the conversion experience of both and that is hospitality don't you love how this encounter is experienced in each other's homes right that's the context first the the gentiles are are welcomed into peter's home and then he goes into cornelius's home it would have been incredibly scandalous for peter to eat one of those pigs in a blanket or lizards in a blanket or what, all the other things that are in there it would have been a bigger deal to have gentiles come into his home it would have been an even bigger deal for a jewish man to go into a gentile's home cornelius was a devout man a spiritual man but he wouldn't have been circumcised probably wasn't a sabbath keeper yet probably had some tattoos from his days in the roman army probably ate some of those things, some of those pigs in a blanket, Peter and him would have been uncomfortably different. It's one thing to be hospitable to a friend or to be kind to a stranger. It is a whole other thing to be hospitable to somebody who is uncomfortably different than you and to be so hospitable that the people in the church start talking negatively about it after you do it. That's what happens. Check it out in chapter 11. He comes back from visiting Cornelius and everyone's like, what are you doing? (laughs) You can't go do that. That's the kind of hospitality we see modeled here. I have quoted from uh, Professor Ajith Fernando's commentary on the book of Acts. He wrote uh, in the New International Version application commentary series, he wrote one in the book of Acts. And I wanna share an excerpt from his commentary again. Some stories uh, he shared because he talks about the power of hospitality. Uh, Pastor, or Pastor and Professor Fernando, he's uh, from Sri Lanka, and many of you may be aware that Sri Lanka has had uh, some history, and, and even today, of uh, some challenges with uh, ethnic strife and, and, and religious uh, people, Buddhist, Hindu, or Christians, really having some some persecution and fights, and, and it's not been a pretty picture for many years. So he talked about how hospitality, in that context where he's from, really was a powerful way in which God worked. He said, some years ago, we had staying in our home a Buddhist mother and her young daughter from a village where we were ministering, where our church was doing outreach at. Uh, one of the workers there uh, realized that the girl had what seemed like a serious heart condition and recommend that they take her to the capital city of Colombo to treat for treatment. So we opened up our home. They lived there in the capital city for about two weeks for this family to stay during which time tests were done. And of course, they they ate together, they they prayed together or prayed for this girl and her family. And eventually, a decision was made that they had to operate on this young girl. A few nights before the girl left for the hospital, she had a dream in which Jesus met her and told her not to worry because he would look after her. That morning, she told her mother that she would like to become a Christian. The operation was successful, a few months later I was at the service where the mother and daughter were both baptized. On another occasion, he says, we had a young Hindu convert stay in our home with his mother after their home was burned down in riots between our race and theirs. She stayed with us for six months, but before she left, she too was baptized as a Christian. Of course, he goes on to to say, not all such contacts, contacts become Christians. We have many Hindu neighbors for whose salvation we have yearned for over the years. One one night during the same riots just mentioned, my wife kept about 30 of these Hindu women and children in our home while gangs from my race were attacking their race. I was ministering in Pakistan at the time. They were so grateful for our hospitality, for the expression of solidarity we gave with them. But despite our efforts at witness, none of them has become a Christian Yet that will not influence our decision to have them again and again if the need arises. Something cool, the version that I have of this commentary is in the uh, Kindle version, which was uh, updated later, and there's a footnote in there where Fernando says there actually has now been a handful of those 30 women, not all of them, but who who have given their life to Christ. Hospitality is no small thing specifically with those uncomfortably different from us. I think it's one of the most powerful ways God changes hearts. We see it here in the story. The third and final factor, and I think it's the most important one, Jesus Christ was the center of their encounter. I hope you're seeing a recurring theme from me, from the book of Acts, that Jesus Christ needs to be at the center of of our encounters with others and with each other. I don't know if Maggie is still in here, but I just love what she prayed today. Don't let our earthly stuff get in the way of the light of your son, God, right? Isn't that beautiful? And when Peter comes there, how would you like that? If you invited a guest into your home and the first thing they say is, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here, it's you know making me ceremonially unclean to be here. You know. That's how he starts the encounter. But then they said, but you have a message for us. What is it? And he says, well, here's the message. It's the good news of Jesus, the Lord of all, the one who is the judge of everything, the the one who's who's provided through his life and his death and resurrection, life for us, forgiveness for us. And it was while Jesus was the center of the encounter, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's when the baptisms happened. Hearts are changed when Jesus is at the heart of our encounters together. As I was thinking about how profitable it was for Peter and Cornelius to have Jesus at the center of their encounter, a passage came to my mind that I'd like to use for the illustration for this last point. passage that I um, read in my devotions this week. felt it was fitting to share with you today. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Oh, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. It would have been so easy for Peter and Cornelius to argue as a Jew and a Gentile, about genealogies. It would have been so easy for them to quarrel about the law. Given their differences, it would have been tempting to focus on what was unprofitable, on things that divided them. But instead, they focused on what was profitable. They focused on the things of Christ. So family, I want to invite you to commit to these same three Factors in your life. I want to invite you to make prayer something you live, not just something you do. That's an appeal that I need to hear today, too. Something you live, not just something you do. And you know what? We've got some cool things here at Calamasa Church that can help you get started. I don't know if you noticed, we have a prayer room over here, right? Betty has been part of this ministry for so many years. I can't wait till we get to heaven and we hear all of the different stories from the prayer ministry that you have helped spearhead so, so long in our church. We have a prayer room here. Every uh, time after service, we have people from our prayer team there, and you can come and pray together. Pray for one another. Give a request for something that you're going through. Pray for our church. We also have a prayer meeting that just started up. A, f- a handful of, of members said we want to do prayer meeting again. It meets at 645 Wednesday nights in the fireside room. We have this cool thing. We advertise it every week. It's called Deep Drop Everything in Prayer and Pray. We're at 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. every day. You can know that if you drop everything and pray, unless you're like in the middle of surgery or something, don't drop everything. But, you know, for most of us, we could probably drop everything and pray at that time. And isn't it cool that you're doing that with your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Calamesa? There's a few things we can kind of help you get started. I know it's not easy. It may take some growing like it did for Joseph Kidder. We spend some time failing at it, but we keep going to make it part of our everyday rhythm. We can do so much more beyond just doing prayer here. I thought about what about our commute when we go to work? You know, so often my downtime, I don't have my phone with me, but when it's my downtime, my first thing, my first reaction is to take out my phone and fill my downtime with YouTube or news or or highlights from sports from the night before. What if our downtime was our prayer time? Why don't you reach out to a friend or a couple friends and say, hey, let's just get together regularly and pray. There are some close friends of ours that invited us to just do that very thing in the past few weeks, and it has just made all the difference in our life. Make prayer something you live. Secondly, practice hospitality specifically to those who are uncomfortably different than you. Family, that is not a trend in our society today. But I think our scripture tells us it is supposed to be a trend in here amongst the body of Christ. And when you practice that hospitality, I encourage you to focus on what is profitable, the things of Jesus. Lord Jesus, that is simply our prayer today, that your presence, your spirit would fall afresh on us, and Lord, uh, we pray that we would give opportunities for your presence to do that as we seek to live a life of prayer connected with you and seek to be open to inviting people into our lives that may not always think like us or look like us or do the same things as us, Lord, but give us the courage to do that. And Lord, we thank you for who you are, what you've done for us. May we always make that what our where our focus is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.